five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. Hello, space enthusiasts. Welcome to another episode of the Space Business Podcast, where we investigate all the exciting ways in which people participate in the new space economy by conversations with entrepreneurs, executives, investors, and other members of the space family. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor in and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite bus manufacturer and mission integrator. Their satellite technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation for various purposes, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out and also check out my episode with their CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University, or ISU, which is also our partner in this podcast. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide, ranging from executive courses lasting a few days all the way to a one-year master's. Check them out at isunet.edu. On this episode, we continue our quest to get to know space startups around the world. And I'm thrilled that I had a chance to speak to Flavia Tatanadini, CEO and co-founder of Fleet Space Technologies. Flavia is originally from Italy, but nowadays she's based at the heart of the Australian space ecosystem in Adelaide. Fleet provides satellite connectivity for the Internet of Things, or IoT. So that is the Internet that connects, as the name says, things rather than people. This is potentially a big business. And startups aiming to provide this type of service have already raised hundreds of millions. So let's jump into my conversation with Flavia and find out why. Hey everybody, I'm joined today by Flavia Tatanadini, the CEO and founder of Fleet. Hey Flavia, how are you doing? Hi, very good. Thanks for having me. Great. And Flavia is joining us, if I'm not mistaken, from Adelaide in Australia. And Correct. so of course, I was just mentioning to Flavia that this is our second episode in a row that's taking place in the southern hemisphere so we're really trying to to cover the and the antipodeans here we'll talk about that in a little while about the australian ecosystem for space which i'm very curious about but flavia why don't you start out giving us the elevator pitch on fleet fleet space fleet space so on monday next week is fleet's fifth birthday so we co-founded the company five years ago with uh, myself and matt pearson Listen, we, we founded Fleet with a big dream to provide internet from space for the industrial internet of things revolution. So what it means is we are creating a constellation of small satellites to connect devices in industries. And these devices help monitoring various things in industries. Constellation of very small satellites, they're called nanosatellites. And they are kind of changing how network is done. So by bringing the cost down of network in the sky space, we're kind of opening up opportunity for, for Earth. So yeah, Fleet is five very, very soon. So it's been um, a nice journey so far. Congratulations. 
So can you expand a little bit more on that concept of internet in the sky? Because that's obviously something we are hearing a lot these days, um, partly thanks to our friends at SpaceX with Starlink. But I think, you know, for our you know, non-technical listeners, which hopefully is a lot of our listeners, because we want, we want a lot of non-technical listeners, they may not know like these fine distinctions. And your network is obviously like, quite different from Starlink's network. So can you, can yeah. you roll a little more into detail? Okay. <laughs> so first of all, when, uh, I mean, space has been changing quite a lot in the access to space in the past 10 years. So when we talk about internet for space, I agree with you, it's kind of a word used a bit too much lately. What it means is that do we have ability to put networks in space to do telecommunication? Okay. Satellites has been historically very expensive, very, very expensive to manufacture, to launch. You're talking about billions of dollars. So is really literally like a super heavy computer and that heavy computer doesn't give you the opportunity to give internet to everything. There are two types of internet, two parts of comms that are happening in space. Uh, one is um, the internet for people that was Starling is trying also to give and many others. Uh, I think there are billions of people without internet access and comms access in the world. And the other one is IoT. IoT is not internet for people, it's internet for devices and for machines. So there are these two big trends. Why space? Because space has changed. And uh, for people that are not in the space industry, what that means is I always talk about the movie Hidden Figures of the beautiful women that helped in the Apollo mission. Uh, There was an IBM computer in that movie that was massive. It was as big as an entire room and it had less capacity of an iPhone than an iPhone. Yeah. Space is kind of living a parallel experience from that IBM computer to a small iPad or an iPhone. So big satellites are now becoming smaller and smaller, kind of cutting for hundreds of thousands of times the ability and the cost to put satellite in space. So for non-space people, what's happening in the Internet of Space saga is actually quite fascinating. It's a change that we have seen on Earth already in the computer's world. It's just brought to a next level. Yeah. And I think it'd be useful to understand a little bit because I think most people listening obviously are. I hope everybody is familiar with the Internet for people because that's been around now, even for the masses for, you know, almost 30 years, 25, 30 years. But IoT, you mentioned like Internet, space Internet is an expression that's thrown around a lot. And I think it's a little bit the same with IoT. It's like an expression that's thrown around a lot. But I think people don't necessarily fully understand what it means. It's like, okay, it's Internet for things. It's connecting machines. But let's get a little bit more specific. Yeah, exactly. So like, why do we need to connect the machines? And like, what kind of machines are we connecting? And why? And how does that make the world a better place? Listen, I think it's um, (laughs) it's a difficult concept because it is the beginning of the Internet of Things revolution. So we're talking about a vision that is going to happen in the next 15 to 20 years. You mentioned that, you know, internet for people start giving us computers and iPhone 20, you know, in the past 20 to 30 years. Realistically speaking, if you were trying to explain to someone, oh, your life is going to change with a computer 40 years ago, probably no one would have believed it, right? <laughs> Everyone would be like, why? So we are in exactly the same point with internet of things. Is the next industrial revolution, they call it the fourth industrial revolution. It's an industrial revolution that is going to allow industry 
globally, but also on a personal level in cities, to count on devices more. So I distinguish Internet of Things is in two buckets, the normal IoT for consumers and industrial IoT. So when you think about normal IoT for consumers, you think about your connected fridge, your Fitbit, you know, the ability to be in a house where everything is, you know, you say something and things get closed and connected to the internet. You can automate them from your work and you come home and you go your coffee. So all that amazing experience that we will have in the next 20 years, it will be IoT consumer based. A fleet, uh, we, were, we decided to focus on industrial IoT. And again, it is an industrial revolution. Industry, if you think about mining and transport and uh, you know, oil and gas and energy, you name it. They have yeah. been changed in every industrial revolution. In the previous one, you know, by bringing computers, we can't live without, right? If you got one day at work without a computer, like I'm going to go home. I don't know what I'm going to do today. So IoT is going to do the same. There are a lot of things that that are unconnected. If you think, let's let's bring some example, okay? Yeah. If you think about energy sector, you know the way they operate. We know with long poles and wires in the middle of nowhere, the people in a car checking things. If there is a fault, if there is an outage, and, and things like that, mining and oil and gas pipelines, all this huge infrastructure that we have in the world are maintained and monitored by people in cars traveling hours. So there, we kind of reach an efficiency ceiling and our operations are getting really complicated. You know, during this incredible year that we are experiencing, you know, with people working from home, how would have that happened without a computer, right? You cannot even imagine that, that would have, the world would have stopped. So it's similar when you need to work, everything has to go through a person driving in a car and checking a pipeline, a water line, um, an energy grid, an agriculture field. The world is a big place. So IoT promise is, is, is the fact that we can monitor a lot of things like um, and water pressure and, and gas pressure and humidity, environmental status and asset tracking, you name it to give assets an IP address so that a lot of automation can be done home. And I don't expect everyone to actually understand it. You know, during every industrial revolution, no one was really getting it except a couple of people that jumped on it and say, okay, this is gonna change the world. IoT is one of those things. It is gonna change the world. It is really hard to understand, but in 20 years, we will not live without. Yeah, and in 20 years, it's going to make all the sense. And I, I agree with you here. When we are about to go through these big changes, it's, it's very hard to see what's ahead. I mean, you know, we've been talking about the regular, the internet for people, right? And I, I remember because I'm a little bit older, right? I was at university in the, in the mid-90s and, you know, the internet started and we all thought this is going to be really exciting. But, you know, I'll be quite honest, like none of us imagined like Facebook or Uber or Airbnb. No. We're like, yeah, there's like a little bit of email and like really bad web browsing and, 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 and yes, check the Amazon, weather, you maybe. can buy a book. Exactly. But that was it. And um, so I totally agree with what you're saying there and sympathize. However, it's you have given us some examples, and that's great. Like, for example, the agriculture, the energy sector, mining, and so forth. 
So just to flesh that out a little bit more, I guess what that means is, let's take an example from the energy sector. You may have a remote location for um, energy generation, like maybe a wind turbine or a solar array or something. And like you said, instead of sending people out there, I guess, if I understand it correctly, you would have some sort of fleet sensor on the device and that sensor would then connect to your satellite network. Yeah, if you look at energy and all these industries I just mentioned, a lot of the infrastructure are next to us, like really ports and wires and transmission lines and distribution lines. But usually energy generation is in the middle of nowhere, you know, and uh, big assets are in the middle of nowhere. So um, you get to a point that you don't have visibility of anything. You're, okay, what's the current there? Why we don't have current anymore? Did something cut the line? Did something happen in the station and half of the city is out of power? Most of the operations are quite dark. And so we still rely on people jumping in cars and, and check. So that create a kind of compound effect of waiting time, people disconnected from critical infrastructure. And why is that? Because if you have to put a sensors on anything, it could be an enormous expensive exercise, right? In Europe, just in the country where you are, there are millions, millions of poles and why. So now you do an investment to spend like $10,000 per pole to monitor them. You can't do that. Now there's been a big change in technology. So this is always what happened in which sensors are going down in price. There are more plug and play, like sub $100. There are satellites connectivity that is low cost. So you don't spend a fortune to connect the sensors, but a couple of euros and this combination of amazing technology allow you to monitor everything so you are in hq you're drinking a coffee and you know exactly how your entire assets is performing why there are faults what's happening there without having field services that constantly go here and there so this is the promise of iot and, um, and it's happening <laughs> So literally you put sensors, there are not fleet sensors. I mean, fleet leverage a community of sensors ecosystem and is sensors agnostic. But we, with some amazing technologies, we created a, a, an incredible satellite network that allows you to get the data where you want to have it, in the way you want to have it, and act on them. And at the end, it's all about data, I guess, no? And as you're saying, those sensors are now relatively cheap. You mentioned the several hundred dollars. The other question I had, so if this is in a very remote location, is there any sort of issue with battery life or do you just take Absolutely. the power? Battery life is a big problem in IoT, you know, in any form of IoT. There's been new protocols that's been built similar to the GSM that we use for our phones. People in the past 10 years have been building protocols for things. And the goal was reducing the amount of data so that your batteries can last longer. You know, I've got a eight years old and a four years old. I want I bought them an IoT watch for kids. Okay. Yeah. And you can just call mom and dad. So it's very simple. Uh, really cool. The problem is that it relies on Wi-Fi, you know, 3G, 4G, more or less their battery. And this watch does minimal, like minimal things. Okay. Just yeah. make a call. That's it. That battery lasts two hours. Wow. It's okay. crazy. So imagine now you want to deploy hundreds of thousands of sensors in an energy network that you need to change batteries every day. Makes no sense. So this industry wants to automate. It's just technology. We're never there to do so. 
But now new protocols are completely different from Wi-Fi GSM has been built. We call them low power wide area networks. So LoRa and MBIoT. Okay. Yep. And we are leveraging them and say, okay, perfect. These protocols are amazing. That allows you to deploy sensors low cost. The data will get directly to the internet so you can act and your business can change. We're going to provide a satellite solution that is low cost and super smart, super amazing, so that no matter where your asset is, that data comes to your HQ. And this is actually a very complex exercise. You know, I remember when I started Fleet, I was connecting a sensor that was measuring like humidity, like something cheap, tiny, sending a couple of kilobytes of data. And I was spending $1,000 a month to connect via satellite. And I'm like, this can't be. So kind of bringing a lot of software knowledge, a lot of advanced technology. We gave up, now we give opportunity to everyone to connect via satellites. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And I was just thinking while you were speaking, I was just like thinking myself about use cases. And don't laugh, but the first one I came up with you was sort of like, well, this is going to be great for me. Like, I will never lose my cat. Like, oh, absolutely. My my cat again because she goes out <laughs> and I guess sort of like pet tracking could be a, a use case because I mean there's many millions of pets in, uh, in, in various Absolutely. countries in, in the cities uh, consumer based IoT pet tracking is huge <laughs> I've got two dogs so I get it. this is the use case I can immediately sympathize with and I was well, like oh yes your kids you want to know where they are where are they yes okay. yes absolutely yeah. you can see all these amazing IoT city based consumer based changes that slowly we get into our life up to changing an industry changing you know amazing huge companies just inserting these arrays of sensors is pretty cool yeah now the only question when i was thinking about the cat so you know as you know i'm doing this call from my office right outside of zurich so i'm in a relatively like urban area and it's like my cat is probably never, hopefully never going to run away so far that she would need, like really need satellite connectivity. Like, you know, hopefully. here it's pretty dense cellular, <laughs> I hope so. Here it's pretty dense cellular coverage. So how does that work? Are you guys focused really like on use cases where you definitely need satellite connectivity? Yeah. Or is there some sort of like, you know, interconnectivity between the cellular I mean, we, network? We have interconnectivity, but we focus on our strength. Like I think 97% of the world is out of GSM. Is a huge word out there, concluding oceans. So uh, what is covered, I don't think that the satellites will never be faster or better than terrestrial infrastructure. So whether it's 3G, 4G, now 5G, of course you count on them. Fleet just gives you that complementary where there is not this type of infrastructure. There are not this type of infrastructure. Yeah. It's quite funny because we have built the 3G, 4G, and now will be the 5G very much in the areas of the world where people are, you know? So if you look at the maps of the world, they are all around the cities. And, uh, you know, Europe is quite well connected, but we are in Australia, don't forget Asia, even US. So all the industries and remote communities that have zero connectivity, this is what we're targeting. Yeah. And that, that makes a lot of sense that the traditional cell networks would be focusing on where people live. But like that there is a number of industries that some of which we already mentioned like you know the mining and, and energy generation where really you have to go out in into very remote areas and then so so they understand a little bit how that architecture works so you have the sensor and, and by the way what size should one imagine like these sensors is this like book size like a dime no, size smaller, like the palm of your hands even smaller okay. 
Okay, so you can literally kind of attach that to almost anything. Yeah, there are different types of sensors depending on application. So it really depends on the application. Usually the way we operate and IoT integrators operate, they, they enter into an enterprise world and they're like, okay, what, what, what would you like to measure if you could? GPS positioning, vibration of machinery, dust, environmental, current, voltage. There is a sensor for everything. These sensors are as, as very small now. The OEMs are building them all around the world, leveraging this protocol. So it's a big change. So uh, sensors cost goes down, connectivity goes down. You sprinkle some intelligence in it, like AI and machine learning, yeah. to allow small sensors as a palm of your hand to act with amazing accuracy. So imagine a mining site, you know, or a hydroelectric plant that they want to automate their operation. So Nowadays, it's not automated. They would like to apply a thousand valves, sensors, truckers, hundred thousand of things. And there you go. You attach them. Fleet, Fleet is a kind of a little network. We sell a base station that creates a, a wireless area around it. So sensors can talk at 20 kilometers radius. It's, it's amazing. So can, their battery life can last years and years and years and years. They can send data out 20 kilometers. We aggregate data, send it to the satellite, send it to the ground station, send it to an AWS platform, and get it on your phone. Just answer my next question, because the next question would have been sort of like connecting to satellites. You know, I sort of dimly remember sort of what I studied about what's called link budgets and, you know, how big antennas have to be and things like that. And I also remember like my most direct personal experience with satellite communications, although voice communications, which I understand is much harder than you know, or much more data is some point I went both to the South, the North Pole and the South Pole. And of course, there is no cell network and you need satellite phones. And the satellite phone I had, I think it was an Iridium or Global Star. It was just yeah, that could be. heavy. It was like a brick in my pocket. I'm sure it was. <laughs> so I was like thinking like, wow, how can you get these sensors too small? But I guess there's two things. Like one, you transmit much less data, but also like, I think as you explained now, you actually take two steps. You go from sensor to sort of a base station and then from the base station to the satellite. Yeah. Okay. Without having huge, crazy, gigantic things in your pocket, you know, it's, uh, yeah. it's good. Right. And then, so let's continue that discussion of sort of your system architecture. And then you already mentioned about the satellites, of course, one of the most interesting trends in space and why space is so exciting right now is the cost decreases across the board. And probably people are most familiar with is obviously the sort of the drop in launch costs that because SpaceX is really using rockets, the launch is much cheaper. Yeah. But as you sort of alluded to, that's what people, fewer people know. The same thing is really happening with, um, you know, in space and satellite technology as well, that components and satellites in, in general are getting much, much cheaper. And I think you mentioned that, like, historically, like, you know, satellites were very big and could have cost, like, hundreds of millions of dollars, and they were, like, the size of a bus or something sometimes. <laughs> what do your satellites look like? Like, how big are they? Roughly how much do they cost? And, yeah. They are as big as a shoebox. A good, a good shoe box, Like, 20 by 30 or 10 by 40 centimeters. So they're tiny. They would be bigger than a water bottle. The idea there is then of launching a really big satellite, so a really, really big bird that, bear in mind, it, as I said, as we said, it's a billion of dollars, but just not that. It takes a long time to build it. Then you launch it into space, and it's there for 40 years using old technologies. 
it's really hard to build technologies like this. So the whole idea is small satellites, they're called nanosatellites, okay. is that you can launch them closer to Earth because they are smaller. And instead of launching a very, very big satellite, you launch hundreds of small ones. So you can imagine as a space startup how easier it is to get, you know, we all know the concept of MVP in software hmm? and uh, how do you put an MVP in space if you need to build a $1 billion satellite. But when it costs a million dollars and it covers all Earth and you can launch them one at a time, you know, one after the other, it's less expensive constellation and the big guy. And also you can increase technology and launch them in stages. It's amazing. So we piggyback. So we launch in real rocket and they get released in the orbit. They have their lifetime, three to five years, more or less like an iPhone. And then you change them and launch another one. That's and how can, it works. And part of the reason you can do that, of course, because it's so much cheaper than it used to be. So right. I mean, you're picking up and you're saying it's the size of a shoebox. So I'm guessing, you know, that's the, the, even the entire weight is just going to be a few kilograms, probably, yeah. right? Yeah. And so now these days when, you know, on SpaceX with what they call the, the rideshare program, where basically you can send your satellite when they send their own satellites up, it's $5,000 a kilogram. So let's say if your satellite is, you know, like five kilograms, it's like $25,000 to launch a satellite to space, which is like ludicrously cheap in a historical comparison. Uh, and, you know, and so the key for satellites operator is uh, to build very advanced payloads that can fit in that small space. Yeah. So uh, you can have very capable satellites, but it's all also due to the um, decrease in uh, size of PCBs and electronics. It's the same trend going from a big computer to a small one. It's happening in space, right? Yeah, it's the example you mentioned, like the Apollo era computer that's now less powerful than than, than the iPhone. So. In terms of designing your satellites, I guess, you know, where you guys obviously add most value on your technological know-how is on in what you mentioned, the, the so-called payload, right? Which is for the communication, yeah. um, like the, basically the radio. Like, so that I assume you're probably building in-house, but how about the rest of the satellite? Are you doing it yourself or are you just, you know, buying some platform? Because these days there's obviously like a few people around who, who offer this. We recently had Vitinis uh, on, the CEO from Nano of Avionics, but there's a number of companies like that now. Listen, there are numbers of companies. The industry is still at its infancy, but it's getting better and better every year that we speak, okay? What is interesting about managing a constellation of satellites is that you actually transfer data to customers. So our main objective is we are going to send you data and we're going to make sure that the data is good, that the data is reliable and is useful. So Fleet's main business is this, providing IoT data and insights to customers. The technology that we're building, the radios are really important. Uh, the satellite itself, we decided to um, work with our American company called Tyvac, sure. that is very similar to Nanoavionics. They build the bus. I think that one thing that is very important for space is being as small as vertical integrated as possible, just for the speed of development. But nowadays... It's terrible to say, but the bus of a satellite is a sort of commodity, right? Yeah. Sure. So if you have got budget, you probably can build it. But generally speaking, you better focus on your customers and uh, managing the data flow if someone else builds your bus. 
you know, your, it's like the towers of a 3G network, right? So it's pretty fascinating watching what's happening in the ecosystem. Eh? Yeah, you brought up an interesting point about the vertical integration and sort of like, you know, being aware of, you know, where you really add value to your customer. So, and you were mentioned, so you're, you're in the business of basically providing that, you know, data to monitor the customer's devices, but sort of like how far down do you go in terms of like, let's say, refining this data? Because let's say when I have, you know, similar discussions with um, primarily earth observation companies, there's sometimes customers complaining that a lot of earth observation companies only provide very raw data. And actually yeah. what the customer wants is really refined data for their use case. So they can log in somewhere. Ideally it integrates with their systems, you know, just like something really user-friendly. How's your thinking on that? Listen, our thinking is a little bit different from my competitor in the ecosystem. So I've got my view. We decided to work in IoT end-to-end and also bring smartness in the comps. So we don't uh, send raw data, but we send insights and alerts and information, important information. So one of our biggest IP is a machine learning edge computing. It's an edge computing platform that allows you to actually give to the customers not an Excel of data points, but insights directly in their operations to make decisions. So I'm a big fan of the second thing that you were talking about. So yeah. work to make it as much as customer friendly. Sometimes it's easier to work with some partners. Sometimes yeah. you have to do it yourself. So that's a, a bit of a journey. Yeah. If when the community gets better, they can help you in the journey and you know and create that customer friendly. But at the end of the day, an energy operator doesn't really want to know that the current value in that line is three. They want to know what they're going to do with that information. They don't yes. care. And with Earth observation, it's the same. Like, okay, give me a photo of my farm. So what? You know, so what am I going to do with it? So the interesting thing is, and I totally agree with your approach. However, I guess the sort of the challenge that poses is that, like to the extent you have a number of, you know, viable customer industries, you know, like spanning from, you know, like some of those we discussed, like, you know, energy, mining, and, and so forth you would have to almost become a little bit of an expert into in each of these industries, either that in-house, or I suppose, like you said, and, and I guess that's a little bit the model where Earth Observation is going to, you partner up with companies that basically do that step of taking your raw data and refining it for the final customers. I think when you start building something very new, you need to roll up your sleeves a little bit, but it's not a sustainable model. <clears throat> you can't yeah. do it forever particularly if you want to be a big VC-backed company and become a very high-growth company uh, with a product that is easy to use from everyone. But the beginning, you need to roll up your sleeves and get into the nitty-gritty. I think you have to. You need to create a relevant service. And then once you've understood all the aspects, you can bundle the service and the application or, or whatever it is, and other people can bring and sell it. But if you don't do the dive-in yourself, no one else will do it for you. <laughs> you know, yeah. you need to make your product better and the experience of the customer needs to be good. But at the end of the day, you have a product and other people have to be able to put software platforms. So everything needs to be API and, you know, the ecosystem around you needs to grow. Yeah, I agree with that. It's like very often this, when you break around in a new industry, you're actually forced to do the vertical integration and then maybe over time, hopefully you can outsource part of that is interesting one of our 
most recent guest was uh, Victoria Alonso Perez, and um, she's oh yeah, she's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I love her. For people who haven't listened to that episode, she's basically putting like sensors on on cattle and in theory on other animals as well. So I guess that we could come back to cats too, but it's primarily on cattle, and then basically <laughs> that is an IoT ap- application to monitor the health and the movement of of the cattle. Um, so she has kind of focused on that second step of you know taking raw data and like refining a use case for for a very specific specific industry. But just finishing up the discussion on so your customers, we actually haven't or I forgot to ask. Uh, we haven't talked about how do your customers actually pay? So is this basically is that as usual some sort of like per data per message um, revenue model or how does that work? It's an on an American revenue subscription model that kind of bundles the entire IoT experience. Uh, so it's um, types of number of sensors, okay? Yeah. So if it's, I don't know, 100 to 500, 500 to 1,000, stuff like that. So it's, um, for us, it's the idea is that, hey, you know, the incumbents spend 100 to $1,000 a megabyte. We sell it for 100 times cheaper. Plus, uh, we per sensors we give you the end-to-end experience. Your subscription they subscribe to a, a platform called Nebula for getting the data. So it's really a, a subscription model, and there you go. So make it also simple in terms of price and experience in the payment side. I think it's it's tricky in IoT, but we're getting there. <laughs> yeah, and then. I know it's a difficult question, but then in terms of sort of like, you know, thinking about the use cases and your revenue model, I mean, you know, in a, I don't know, medium term timeframe, how big do you think this market could be? I think it's huge, <laughs> particularly when you, I mean, I, I can't speak for consumer IoT. It's not my, uh, I just consume consumer IoT and I love it as a person, but industries are desperate for IoT and uh, they spend millions if not hundreds of millions on uh, not automated systems so they got budgets for entering in fully fully digitalized automated operations it's a huge market so all the biggest company in the world they will enter in contract of millions of millions of dollars you know just to have these things happen so yeah on the other hand i suppose is there's um there's a few other people who kind of believe in the same story and there's, uh, you know, some other companies who are going after the same basically space and like, well, in the broadest sense, IoT satellite, IoT space. It's funny, um, actually, you sit in Adelaide, so I, I know there's our friends at Marriotta who kind of, I think, almost across the street from you. <laughs> here, in, uh, here in Switzerland, we have um, um, Astrocast, um, there's Kines in France, Hyber in Holland, Swarm in the U.S., is there any sort of like natural segmentation to the market or is really everybody trying to do more or less the same thing? It's a very interesting question. We were chatting about it with our investors one hour ago. I think they all we all started with different visions. Fleet vision, for example, is very, very different from everyone else. Like we wanted to help the rest of the infrastructure to grow instead of building our own technology. I think in time, the market is speaking for itself of the things that are working or not. Low power weather network protocols are growing like crazy. Six constellations of satellites for IoT, it's insane. So eventually things will come together. The customers need a mix of solutions. So eventually I see that the, the market will start merging a little bit. The incumbents are really keen to do that. I don't think they are nailing it yet. So it will be interesting to see if there are acquisition opportunities there down the track. 
what I found interesting is that four or five years ago, these six companies started. And for, for a series of reasons, they kind of dominate in the IoT space and not other. It's, it's a difficult industry. It's not like building a SaaS model for HR employment platform where you've got 100, 1,000 of them and some always succeed. We now have six and they're all moving, you know. So it's fascinating yeah. to watch. And there are no new entries because there are a lot of licensing issues and a lot of things that we grabbed that avoid other people to enter in our space. So it will be interesting. I think it's been interesting as well with those various companies that there has been a lot of investor money flowing into the sector. I mean, some of these fundraisers have been quite big, which I suppose is sort of validation in the sense that investors are also excited about that. But you just mentioned you had you just had an investor discussion. How has your fundraising experience been? Um, yeah. We've been, how, yes, we've been lucky. Yeah, I think Fleet, uh, I mean, we raised with Horizon Ventures, with American investors. We got billionaires in Australia. We got fire behind us. And that's beautiful. Like a lot of visionary, a lot of support. A lot of people that understand the value in industries and IoT. It's, uh, I wish success to all of us always during race because it means that the, we are going, if they all die, that's not a good sign. <laughs> You know what I mean? Sure. So the fact that we're all moving, it validates what we're trying to do. Capital raise in, for a space startup, it's a journey. I mean, you can meet every investor you want with a space startup, but not everyone will invest. But IoT is well, is well understood, you know? So we are really so customer-focused, particularly Fleet is so customer-focused <laughs> that we haven't had major problems so far. Now uh, that we are all approaching Series B, all of us, I think it's starting to be quite complex for investors to understand the differences. <laughs> and I think what I know is that the real yes or no is in the end of the customers. You know, they will say which services are better and which one bring them more joy. Yeah, yeah. When you, when you say Series B, it's a good moment to kind of actually, because we haven't done this yet, talk about the status of the company right now. It's sort of like, where are you actually in your execution plan? Like, you know, how many satellites do you have up there and how would that evolve with, you know, with the raising of a Series B? So we have uh, launched four. We are launching uh, other three. What we are trying to do is get into a point that we want to mass produce satellites. When you must produce satellites, you just have to be very confident in the payload design and in the bus design. You know, it takes a little tweaks. We have done things very, very fast, I have to admit, and have done so much progress from one satellite to the other. It's not even funny. But that's the idea. That's the idea of the next race is that, okay, we're ready. We must produce. Mass produce is important because of um, the latency of an IoT network. You want to have as much and more satellites in the sky as possible so you can serve high-quality applications, okay, when your reaction to an issue in the field has to be fast. Also, launching more satellites, you launch more, you go faster. This is what I want to achieve. We've got still few, a long runway at one year to work towards also making sure that all these applications we're working on are scalable and can be reproduced and reused worldwide and it should be just a no-brainer at that point in time you know with the network working with the sales and customer happy then we just keep expanding the network how many satellites do you ultimately think you're going to get to oh more than 100 140 is our constellation 
Never but the idea yeah. is that you keep launching. Okay. You just keep launching. Keep making money, keep launching. And we really wanted, I think in the competitive space, there's amazing companies and I like them all. I think what Fleet, if you look at what Fleet has got probably different from the other, is probably most amazing payload in the world. And I'm not afraid to say it. But we have been very close to the customer, very close since day one, because we have been using other satellite companies, you know, to improve our product. So I feel we are three years ahead of everyone. So that's cool. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned, I mean, speaking of competitors, and, and of course, I wouldn't ask you to comment on any competitor specifically, but you mentioned somewhere a few minutes ago the word incumbents. And so I just wasn't sure whether what you meant by that. Is that IoT incumbents where the only one I Big satellite company. Ah, okay. Like uh, Imasat, Iridium, Opcom. Yeah. Uh, okay. yeah. They won't do IoT, yeah. <laughs> and, yes, and Iridium yeah. arguably is doing IoT, but it's, I guess it's a special kind of IoT, right? It's, it's, certain, yeah. it's very specific users. It's relatively high priced. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And they are not shy to say it. You know, this is their business model. This is, uh, this is how they're approaching the problem, eh? Speaking of specific users and, and high price and so forth, I mean, uh, so if you're talking about some of these industrial use cases like, um, you know, again, mining and energy, but obviously another one, I guess, theoretically is is, is the government, right? And like uh, you yeah. know, military in remote locations and so forth, military equipment. Um, is that also something that's a valid thing and something you're looking Absolutely. at? Absolutely. I mean, defense is a great customer. The good things about us uh, in the past couple of years having worked with gas pipelines and water so all the critical infrastructure we have to put in place a pretty high heavy cybersecurity system here otherwise you don't win any contract eh? i mean you are moving industrial data i think this is that is getting us quite well prepared for um having defense as a customer when you have defense as a customer there are a lot of things that change (laughs) But it's a very, I mean, like SpaceX will not be where they are if they didn't have defense as a customer, right? So yeah. it's a great customer to have along yeah, the way. It's actually true for many, many, many space companies. And I agree, even for Rocket Lab, you know? Yeah. And then... Um... So a follow-on question from your fundraising experience. So you also, um, just a few minutes ago, mentioned Victoria Alonso Perez. So she was the first sort of female space, well, space in a broad sense CEO we had on. You're the second one. So I'll ask you the same question I asked Victoria. Sort of, this is obviously historically relatively male-dominated industry. You know, when I go to some of our industry conferences, you can <laughs> very clearly see this. How has it been your experience being a you know female space founder or CEO? I think it's awesome. What did Victoria say to you? I think it's awesome. And I think it has to become the normal. Yeah. And uh, I didn't have any issues. Actually, I think it's a superpower. Yeah. You know? She didn't have any issues either. So I'm very happy to hear that two times in a row. Now, what I will say is, so recently I was on another panel. And um, in preparation for that panel, I ran my own statistics on our internal database of startups. And we found something like, um, you know, if you look at C-level executives in space startups, it was like, I think, 85% male. And I was like, okay, we got to change that. No surprise. <laughs> uh, we got to change that. And that's startups, right? It's not established companies, established big aer- old, old aerospace companies. We have to change that. And then we started brainstorming on a panel how we have to change that. And then really because so much of the sector is engineering driven and that's, you know, like, uh, you know, many years of study, we've, we kind of came back to the point, well, we really have to like start changing that at the base, you know, like getting more, getting more girls into STEM education and so forth. I don't know how, do you have any thoughts on that and how, how we should go about that? Of course you need to, you know, I'm talking to you. I've got in front of me a big NASA poster with a female astronaut. So 
yeah. start to talk about. And of course, you have to get them young. You know, I think all the system needs to work together. But it's a very bizarre topic because you know, even I got forty employees, and you know, as you can imagine, I watch very careful also how many females apply for positions and a balance in the company. And I guess you can imagine that's an important topic for me. And it's hard, man. You know, I think that it's not enough. All my life, I've been one of the few engineers and, and now I'm CEO of a tech startup, SpaceX startup. I think it's changing though, you know. Yeah. And when uh, when females come to me, ladies and girls and younger say to me, it's like, how can I become someone really special in the space industry. I mean, my answer is always the same. Study hard. Owns what you know. The world is changed by very smart people and very passionate people, independently from the gender, you know. I've got two kids, a four and eight years old. That's not a showstopper either. And uh, so I think empower girls to just study really hard, really, really hard, and just go for it. And having this... It's happening, though. It's happening. It should happen more. Great, and you know we'll all right. do our part to we'll do our part to kind of keep promoting it more and more. Speaking of, you mentioned your forty staff. Um, are you guys hiring at the moment? We've been hiring last month like crazy because COVID for us was in a really bizarre way. We realized that a lot of amazing people were available in the market. Unfortunately for them, because they lost their jobs, and you know Matt and I we look at each other and say, "Hey, there's a really good talent out there." This was startups of four, you know, to help the economy when these things, you know, hit yeah. the world. So we hired lots of people. So last year, this time we're nine, now we're 40, I think. Probably we need to settle down for a second. But it's just amazing <laughs> to see all yeah. this incredible talent that probably in another period in it would have been really hard to get, you know. Yeah. So this is true. But I'm also very happy because it seems like almost every one of these interviews I do that the startups are hiring. So it, it seems like the industry has been very resilient and that's very positive. I wanted to just not uh, not forget to talk about a couple of topics. So one which I mentioned at the beginning, you are based in, in Australia and in, in Adelaide, which is sort of, I think, the center of Australian of the Australian space sector, because you're the first one from Australia, could you just give us a few minutes, sort of the view of um, Australia, you know, the, the space ecosystem, and also how did you end up in Australia? Because you're originally... Oh my goodness. Okay. Yeah, I'm Italian originally. I was working at European Space Agency and then, uh, um, you know, I met the father of my kids and he imported me in Australia. What is fascinating is that that was seven years ago when I arrived here, what happened in the past six years, very, very cool. And I think the world know about this because they've been observing us in Australia. A couple of startups. So when I arrived, there were no space agency. It was really hard for me to find a job. There were a lot of universities doing space, some of them really. A lot of defense, but there was no commercial space, no startup, nothing. A few people started startups like us, Mariota. Mm-hmm. And sadly, there was uh, Gilmore, uh, yep. that is a rocket company in Queensland. Yes. Investors, VC investors started investing a good chunk of money. And sadly, there was this explosion of revolution in which the federal state says, okay, we're going to space. And, uh, you know, I was um, part of the group that created a space agency. It's such a honor, yes. you know, for a girl that just arrived, not even Australian. And, yes. uh, and now we've got a space agency up and running. 
Adelaide won the bid to bring the space agency here. When I arrived, there were two space startups and one was mine. And uh, now there are more than 100. There have been, I don't know, 60, 70 million of these investments in three years. It's mental. And the government is spending millions and millions for Australian companies uh, to grow. And the approach of the space agency was very clear. We're going to start and SMEs to create commercial space. That's it. You know, this is what we're going to do. So it's pretty exciting. And, you know, we raised money with American investors and they told us, just stay in Adelaide. You know, this is what everything is happening and money are flowing. So you stay there. So I think it's very cool. And way more talent is coming. All the big companies are moving here. So it's becoming yeah. a little Houston, you know? Yeah. I can see that. And then, I mean, I'm imagining some of your target, uh, interesting target industries, you know, like, like mining, for example, they're very big in Australia anyway. So that's another reason I can think of. I'm also, where would you move to, right? I mean, if you move to, let's say the Silicon Valley, probably the price of your engineers goes up two or three times. That also doesn't it's, make any sense. <laughs> it's amazing how many good engineers that are here. People really love to relocate in Australia. That really is yeah. a beautiful country. For us, it was really good for IoT because it's a huge country that based their economy on mining, oil and gas, energy, and is completely unconnected. So yeah. being very close to customers now, we are bringing this, the lesson learned in five years. Uh, we're bringing it to US and South America and so forth. But yeah, I think it's a good place to be, I have to say. And also in general, not just space, but the tech. There are a couple of companies that became unicorns in the past three years, five years. So I think Silicon Valley is, is having a look at what's happening here. You know, and I like it. I think it's awesome. Yeah, no, I'm a big fan of Australia. I, a long time ago, I lived in, in Sydney for a year, so I, I know all about the advantages of Australia. Wanted to finish up a couple of questions. Um, so you mentioned sort of like other startups. If you were not involved with Fleet, if you weren't doing Fleet, but you know, clearly you are aware of like all of the general exciting macro trends in space that we've discussed, like the cost decreases across the board. What would you be doing, you think, in space? Like if you had to do another startup? Building... Uh... Yeah, an airplane that gets you from London to Adelaide in one hour. That's a good idea, yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because actually the last uh, episode I recorded was with our friends at Dawn Aerospace from Christchurch. Exactly. So actually relatively close to where you are, just a few hours flight. And there. that's, uh, I think, their medium-term dream. So I, I very much hear you like, you know, once this uh, COVID nonsense is over and we all start traveling again, and uh, I would very much like a plane like that myself. They're very fun part that, you know, this thing sounds crazy, but this is not crazy at all. Like how the world changed with airplanes, right? It's mental. Imagine what could happen if Amazon, you know, buy something of, not even think, thinking about people, but you buy something on Amazon in Italy and arrives in two hours. You know, yeah. it's, it's a word that is going to happen. I'm not sure if it's going to happen. If, if me and you will be still alive. <laughs> I hope so. But come on. It's amazing. Yeah, I think the important thing there, and this is a whole separate discussion, and probably it's going to be in the Dawn Aerospace episode, but there isn't anything that I'm aware of, but you're the engineer, that there's no technological impediment. There is like, we should be able to do that. Of course, it'll take Absolutely. a few years. Absolutely. But there's no obstacle. Like, there's nothing that we don't know, like, that we have to develop first. Absolutely. We're going. So, yeah. you know, I will, um, yeah, we'll do that, that next. When everyone <laughs> is, uh, you know... <laughs> Checking what is working and what is not. Space planes. 
Good. I like that answer. And then the last question, which is always our last question, is um, do you like science fiction? So that could be anything, books, TV shows, um, movies. And if so, any preferences or recommendations? Listen, I actually, it's terrible to say, but I actually don't. But okay. I, I really, I don't like them. I think uh, uh, when I started Fleet, I never before that, I didn't really like it. I think I watched Star Wars after because everyone was making fun of me that I didn't watch it. So um, I'm pretty bad at that. But saying that, I also have a poster of 2001, A Space Odyssey in front of me. I think that was cool. Yeah. You know, yes. That was very, very cool. It's uh, clearly those things has an impact. I just love space movies, fiction. Space movies are good, but if you go into Star Wars and all those sorts of things, I'm not as good. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine um so you're the first one to sort of give that answer but i'm, I'm very happy that there's somebody who gave that answer hey, yeah um, you know sorry no no worries uh we, we like you no less for it but it's actually funny because even in my last episode you know stefan from dawn aerospace he was already saying well not really that much i like i prefer the real stories in space and aerospace and i think um there's something you said at the very beginning or referenced at the very beginning of of this interview, which was the movie Hidden Figures about the women who really, behind the scenes, who really made, in some ways, made the NASA, the Apollo program possible. And I think that is a great movie and anybody who hasn't watched it should probably watch it. Cool, Flavia, that's it. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. Um, it was very, very interesting to hear about the company, about Australia and, and, and the other stories. Wish you all the best for Fleet. I take it you are in the process of raising a Series B. So best of luck with that. And, you know, we hope to see more of your, one more of your service come online. Absolutely. And thanks for having me. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode. <laughs>